Please turn with me today to the book of Judges, chapter 6. We're going to kind of go off script from our normal series because today is Father's Day. And so I would like us to look here at a man that was used greatly of God in the nation of Israel. A man that we maybe you have heard of before. His name is Gideon. He is someone that God used to uh, deliver the nation of Israel uh, out of the hand of an oppressor and to begin to turn the heart of the people back where they belong, back to God to worship him. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, looking at verses 25 through 32. It says, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he was, they called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come now for just the next few minutes and look at your word together. We ask that you would use your word in a mighty way, that you would speak to our hearts here, that you would help us not to leave this place the same we came today, but you would challenge us towards change. Lord, I pray for one who may be sitting here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that you would work in their hearts today, you would show them that you uh, have given your Son, Jesus Christ, to have an eternal relationship with them, and that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, I pray for Christians that you would help us uh, to, to take these things to heart. I pray for men that we would stand up for what is right in our homes, in our churches, in our society, and that, Lord, we would seek to honor and glorify you in the things that we do, and that we would lead others closer to you because of these things. We ask now that you would get the honor and the glory for all that's said and done. In your name we pray. Amen. Oftentimes, the greatest changes begin with one person. The struggling company that gains new perspective from a board member. The sports team that takes inspiration from a single player or a single act. A local business that rallies around a, local, a manager a nation that follows its fearless leader through dark times, or a family that transforms behind a dad who takes a stand to set some things straight. Necessary change in our lives can be discouraging and really even overwhelming at times. When we see something that needs to be addressed, and then we really begin to understand the long road ahead of us it's going to take to get to that change, we're tempted to just ignore it, you know, that that we don't really need to make a big deal out of it. 
And we hope that maybe somehow it'll go away or get better. But change in our lives cannot begin to happen until we resolve to do something about it and we follow through. And, and this is true of our spiritual lives as well. God works in our hearts. He does that work in our hearts and he gives us the power in himself that we need in him to see change affected in our lives and in the lives of those around us. But until we submit ourselves to him, we cannot see that change affected in our hearts. And today, as we mentioned at the beginning of the service, today is Father's Day. And God has set forth in his word that fathers are the leaders of the home. And so, men, if you want to see God do his work in your family's life, in your personal life, and the lives of people around you, it must begin with you. He is looking for those who will stand in the gap of a sinful society and respond to his call to godliness. And today in Judges chapter 6, we're going to look at, at such a man that God called in Gideon to stand in the gap and make a difference, to stand up in a society that did wrong, to stand up in a family that didn't serve God and do great things for him. And what we see here in this passage is that a broad impact for the Lord begins with a personal commitment to following God exclusively shown in active obedience. Because I think many of us want to have a broader impact. Many of us want to, uh, to, to see our, uh, our, us used in a great way in other people's lives. But it has to begin here with ourselves. It has to begin again, with, between us and God, making that commitment to following him exclusively and then actively obeying the things that he calls us to do. And so we're going to look at that here, how that plays out in the life of Gideon. But before we do that... I want to give you some context of where we are because it's really hard to just open up the book of Judges and not really get a picture of what's going on. Now, the, the, this book, Judges here, takes place in the nation of Israel. And before you can even talk about Judges, you have to talk about a guy named Joshua. Joshua was a leader of the, of the Israelites when they came to the land that God promised them, the land of Canaan. And he said, I'm going to give this land to you. But Joshua was to lead the conquest of Canaan. And so Joshua had led the people, and you can read about this in the book of Joshua, which is the sixth book in the Old Testament. And Joshua had led the people on a mostly successful campaign in the conquering of the promised land. And while Joshua and his generation lived... The people of Israel did what was right. They set their sights on serving God. And they were known under Joshua as a nation that consistently did this. Now, were they perfect? Of course not. But they consistently chose to serve the Lord. And at 110 years old, Joshua passes from the scene. And when Joshua passes from the scene, the things in the nation of Israel begin to change. And in the book of Judges, you see the life that happens after Joshua. The generation that came up after Joshua's was much different. You're you're there in Judges chapter 6. Would you go back with me to Judges chapter 2 and let me show you a couple of things that change after Joshua? In Judges chapter 2 verse 10, we read, When all that generation, talking about Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them that did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Here's a group of people that grew up in the promised land. 
We know the scriptures tell us that the promise about the, about the land that God gave his people is a land flowing with milk and honey. It was land that gave them everything they needed to survive and so much more. And they grew up there, but they did not know the God that had brought them there. And this is surely an indictment on the previous generation as much as it is anything else. Because how does a nation get to this point unless God's people fail to tell their own about who God is and what he's done? And instead of living a life of victory over the enemy, they begin to imitate the enemy. Keep going there in Judges chapter 2, look at verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asterisks. The false gods of the people that lived in the area of Canaan had captured the attention of God's people. And God had been very specific and very clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here the people were taking to themselves other gods that they wanted to serve. They forsook the almighty living God for a cheap substitute. And in one generation, the godly nation of Israel is gone. In its place is a disobedient, rebellious people. And how quickly things can change in our lives when we walk away from from God. How quickly our lives can degrade into things that don't please him when we don't follow him at all. And, and as Israel walks away from God, and, and as Israel runs to these, these false gods, a pattern emerges in the book of Judges. Really, what you have in the book of Judges is a vicious cycle. Because God promises this, that he never lets sin Go unpunished. He was very clear with his people that he would punish their sin. He said to them, you read specifically throughout the book of Deuteronomy, that he would judge their sin if they forsook them. And God always keeps his promises. That's an encouragement and a challenge to our hearts. I mean, it's encouraging that God has promised he would never leave us nor forsake us, but it's also a challenge to our hearts that he always judges sin. And so throughout the book of Judges, you see this cycle. And and, and I'm going to put it up here on the screen for you. And I apologize if you can't read it all, but I'll I'll read it to you as we go. So so you have have the cycle of the book of Judges as you go through it. And this is what would happen. First, the the people would forsake God. They would walk away. They 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 would... worship a false god they would build these altars like we'll read about here in judges chapter 6 and they would they would they would exalt these deities that are nothing but cheap substitutes so they would forsake god and in in its place they would worship another god because you can't forsake one without running to another and then of course this brings about god's wrath on their sin And when God is provoked to wrath against sin, because God hates sin, the people would experience distress in God's judgment. And in God's judgment, oftentimes God would deliver them over to an oppressor, like we'll read about here in Judges chapter 6. And so when God would do this, then then the people would, would realize what they had done, and they would cry out to God. 
And God, in His grace and His mercy, would send a judge to save His people. And when the judge came and and saved His people, then, then the people would do right, and they would worship God for a while. And then eventually, as all people do, the judge would die, and guess what would happen? You start it all over again. The book of Judges looks just like this all the time. The people are walking away from God, that God judges them for their sin, that God draws them back to himself, because because the goal of God's judgment is always to draw people to himself. And in contrast to Joshua's generation, these people were not committed to following the Lord. And the book of Judges is just that. It's a book full of contrast. It's a contrast of Joshua's generation with the current generation. It's a contrast of God's faithfulness with Israel's infidelity. It's a contrast of God's ways of right and man's sinfulness. And if you want one verse to sum up the book of Judges, I would point you to Judges. I'll show you up here on the screen. Judges 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you can't have that being said about a nation and it not look really crazy. Because we are not the judge of what is right and what is wrong. God is. God sent judgment on on sin with an end goal in mind every time. Restoration. Because God only promised judgment on sin, but he promised to rescue his people when they repented and he delivered God used tremendous trials to get his people's attention. He, he, he gave the nation over to outside oppressors over and over and over again to get their attention. And again, I think it begs the question of us, what is it that God has to do in our lives to get our attention? What is it that God has to do in your life to get you to return to him, to listen to him, to follow him, to submit to him? Because sadly, sometimes it takes way more than it should for God to get a hold of our hearts. And men, if we want to make a difference in the lives of our families, we need to be sensitive to what God is doing in our hearts. And in Judges chapter 6, we find a time of hardship such as this. So if, as we're back in Judges chapter 6, we need to understand that by the time we reach the sixth chapter of this book, there have been three previous judges in the land of Israel and 43 years of oppression from outside nations. Yet the people continue to return to their sin. And so, as he has before, God gave them over to an oppressor. At the beginning of Judges chapter 6, we read that the oppressor this time is the Midianites. And for seven years, the Midianites rained nothing but terror down on the Israelites. See, what they would do is they would wait until harvest time. And at harvest time, and Israel is, is primarily an agricultural nation... At harvest time, they would organize a coalition, and they would go into Israel, and they would take all their stuff. And you can imagine that creates quite a hardship for God's people. The nation of Israel was left in poverty, and now they cowered in fear. I mean, just look at the mighty nation that God delivered from slavery in Judges 6, verse 2. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. Here they are, hiding in caves. And when God is not your sole focus, you cannot stand before the enemy. And Israel doesn't. Israel is no longer serving God, and thus God is no longer fighting for Israel. And, and, and their land, 
that wonderful gift that God had given them is being squandered. All because they don't want to serve God. They want to do their own thing. And here in the beginning of Judges 6, there's a very frank message that's delivered by an unnamed prophet. He tells them like it is, but they are bearing the natural consequences of their sin. And the prophet's message is not just one of doom and gloom, it's a call for repentance. That they could deny their wrongdoing all they want, but it won't go away. The only way to experience God's blessing in their life again is to to repent, and that is to turn around, to to quit going this way and doing your own thing and come back to God. And you and I in our lives, we can deny wrongdoing all we want. We can call it whatever name we want. We can sweep it under the rug. We can can reason it away. But until we come face to face with it like God says and says what, what God says it is, we cannot make it right. You have to come face to face with sin. You have to come face to face with who God is. And in this dark time, God in his mercy begins to raise up his man, Gideon, to do a great work. And so who is Gideon? Well, we meet Gideon at the beginning of Judges 6, and he's doing what everybody else is doing. He's hiding from the enemy. He's threshing wheat. It's really interesting. We learn he's threshing wheat in a wine press in a cave somewhere. Normally, you do that outside, you know, where the wind could take away the chaff. But you can't do it outside because in the Midianites will come and steal all your wheat. So here he is, hiding. And God sends his call and enlists Gideon in his service. And what we see is that God doesn't see us for just who we are, but what we can be in him. Because God comes to Gideon and he calls him a mighty man of valor. Yet the guy who's hiding in a cave threshing his wheat. You're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon quickly denies this. He doesn't see himself as a man of valor at all. He has questions for God's messenger. And we learn from Gideon's questions that he seems to know some of Israel's history but not all of it. And what Gideon really is doing when he's, when he's questioning God here, he's interpreting God and what God says through his present circumstances and not the other way around. And you and I, we do that in our lives as well. We experience hardship and hard things in our lives, and, 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 and God's sometimes putting his finger on sin in our lives. And we begin to interpret God's word through our circumstances instead of interpreting our circumstances through the word of God. And that's what Gideon does. But God in his mercy continues to, to teach Gideon. Gideon lacks knowledge of the part about God's judgment on sin, which is a microcosm of the nation of Israel for sure. God is trying to get their attention, and they just keep wandering away from God. And and when they wander away from God, they just keep wondering, why is God judging us? And we also often struggle with this in our own lives. And so then God calls Gideon into his service, and he meets his doubts and fears, and he promises Gideon his presence which is all we need for victory. And then he proves that God has sent this message to him. And and that's where we pick up today, okay? I I tried to give you a very quick background of this whole thing because it helps us to understand where we pick up here in the first assignment that God gives to Gideon. That Gideon is called to stand in the gap and to make a difference, to clean house and lead people to the Lord. And this is the call of God to every man. That we are to stand up and make a difference. That we are to call people to serve the Lord. And in his power and his might, we can do that. 
And so we see, first of all, in this passage, we see the countercultural command that comes to Gideon from God. That comes there in verse, verses 25 through 27. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a, second, uh, offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. What, what Gideon is being called to do is to reclaim God's place in his nation. See, Gideon has accepted God's call in his life. He's accept, experienced God's personal message to him and worshipped the Lord. And now God has a preliminary mission for Gideon because the war for Israel must begin in the hearts of Israel and it must begin in Gideon's own home. God had heard his people's cry and begun to raise up deliverance. But, but God's deliverance isn't just limited to the physical. It starts with the spiritual. So Gideon is therefore called on to obey God first in his own home. See, Gideon's family and Gideon's village, they worship the false god of Baal. And Gideon's dad actually built the place of worship for the god Baal. And Gideon's mission was to tear down this altar and to build one for God on its place. And then we have to understand that faith must be exercised and exhibited at home before it can truly be exhibited anywhere else. If you and I will not lead our homes in a godly way, how can we genuinely hope to make a godly impact anywhere else? It's nothing but a show. The genuineness of your spiritual leadership doesn't rely on a show that you put on for others, but it relies on what you truly are. And what you and I truly are is revealed in our homes with the people who know us best. Gideon is going to be called on to do great things for God. Therefore, God gives to him this test of his faith. And it's not going to be easy because what is Gideon going to have to do? He's going to have to defy his own father in order to obey God. Which, by the way, this does not put Gideon at odds with God's command to honor your father and mother because his dad is promoting something that breaks other commandments of God. And so he's going to obey God rather than man if he's going to do this. And it isn't just the fact that Gideon is going to tear down this altar to a false god and build a new one. No, no, he's to use his father's possessions to do so. He is to to use even the wood from that second part of the altar to burn an altar, a sacrifice to God. And he is to take his father's prize bull to do this. And in a time of famine, having a prize bull is a feat in and of itself. It's an important thing. I mean, how are you going to plow your fields for the little bit of food that you get for your family? And they probably even, if they were going to worship, would have reserved it for idol worship. So this is not going to be a small statement. This isn't just a blip on the radar. This is a bold declaration of war on the hearts of Israel. It was a very public action. This altar was in a public place. Oftentimes, these altars were built in a place that was called a high place. And so this is countercultural, both on a micro and a macro level, in his home, in his village, but in the nation at large. The nation as a whole has no interest in serving God. His family and his village have no interest in God. He's not just standing up for a minority, but he is standing up 
for what in those days would be a rarity, the followers of God. And we see that as God calls Gideon to this, we see that that he obeys, but reluctantly. In verse 27, so Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Gideon faces a decision. God has promised him great victory that's to come, but he hadn't said anything about this. You know, sometimes the bigger, broader picture is easier than the smaller, local picture. You know, I can imagine, right? I mean, the picture of, I'm going to use you to... to deliver the nation of Israel. I mean, that, that's overwhelming for a guy like Gideon, but you kind of get behind that after a little bit. You know, okay, God's going to use me in a great way. And here's where it has to start. You have to go confront your family. Oh, you know, I don't know if I really want to do that, right? The, the bigger, broader picture is great. Hey, God's going to do a great work. The smaller picture of you got to make a stand for God where you live is a harder picture to swallow. It's easier And perhaps more attractive that God will use us on some big, broad scale. It's a lot harder when it means that you and I have to start in our homes. That we must start with those who are closest to us and work outwards from there. And certainly, God would do what he promised to do and bring victory to his people over the Midianites. And certainly, he would use Gideon to do it. But, as one commentator said, before he could declare war on Midian, he had to declare war on Baal. And that wasn't just a battle for land or crops. It was a battle for the hearts of Israel. See, Midian is not the problem. Midian is the consequence. Midian is just the consequence of Israel's wandering hearts. And it was one that Gideon wasn't too sure about yet. I mean, he gets 10 other guys. I think that's pretty impressive. He he goes and finds 10 other people to go with him. But they determined to go at night. And it's so often the case that when we read the Old Testament narrative, we're told very plainly why they go at night, because they're afraid. They're afraid to go out in the daytime. They're afraid of what the backlash might be. Gideon really isn't ready to trust the Lord enough to go on broad daylight. And, you know, I think we could spend a lot of time here harping on this point. But I have to ask the question, wouldn't we be the same? Let me rephrase it. Aren't we the same? Aren't we the same that that when God calls on us to do something for him, we're fearful what that means for our lives? We worry about the ramifications for our own personal and family lives if we determine to do what's right. Well, God, you know, if I do that, then this is going to mean we worry about the supposed personal freedoms and privileges that we may have to sacrifice. We get so caught up in this idea that if I go and serve God, well, I won't get to do the things I want to do. I'll have to give up this. I'll have to give up that. So what? Serving God is worth it. And I'll tell you this right now. I've never met anyone who's given their entire life serving to God and found them miserable. There's joy in serving the Lord. Gideon is afraid of the physical backlash that he might face here. But you have to give the man credit. He still went and did it. Our obedience to God must start somewhere. In the end, Gideon still had to believe in the call of God more than he feared man. We may have our fears in our own hearts, though we may not admit it about obeying God. 
I know, man, we, we don't like to say we're afraid, but if we're honest with ourselves, deep down, sometimes when God tells us to do something, we're afraid. We're afraid what it means to be honest with people. We're afraid what it means to, to, to take that step of faith that God is calling. We're, we're afraid what that's going to mean for our families, for our personal lives, for our relationships with other people. But God is bigger than our fears. And God's word can be trusted above all else. We must believe in what God says and what his, that his will and his way is always best. That's what Gideon had to do. And then we see the reaction of the people when that action is discovered. And, and what you see in the community really is a great commotion over what's happened. In verses 28 through 30, we see the actions that have been discovered. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? When they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. So here, the actions of Gideon are discovered, and it was inevitable, right? It was inevitable that someone was going to find out because the night doesn't last forever. You know, there are some nights that seem to take forever to go by. When I was a kid, that was always Christmas Eve, right? And then there are some nights that you wish wouldn't go by so fast. I think this was one in Gideon's mind. He wished it would never end, baby. But the things done for the Lord don't fade into the background in a pagan culture. I just imagine the scene here in Ophrah that morning as the people stir and begin to notice something different. That their exalted place of worship is gone. Gone, that, 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 that wooden post was often called the Ashtaroth. And that vile Ashtaroth is now gone. And in fact, the wood that, would, that Ashtaroth would have been carved out of has been broken up and is used on a simple comparatively primitive altar. And on that altar are the remnants of a bull that has been offered to the one true God. And all of this is just as it should have been in Israel. Everything you read that the people, when they wake up and they see that, that's exactly what God had told them to do. All of this is what must happen to see real victory from God And if we want to make a difference for God, we must tear out the sinful things of our lives and replace it with what is godly. And now the people want answers. I mean, they begin to ask each other, I mean, who did this? And here's the thing. If you take 10 other guys with you, it doesn't take long for people to figure out who did it. Especially in a small town here in the book of Judges. Indeed, Gideon is discovered as the leader of this mission. And as expected, there are ramifications for his actions. I mean, we would see here that the fear of Gideon is not unfounded. Look here at verse 30. And we see the angry mob that is gathered. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So nothing short of what could be described as, as this angry mob assembles in the town that day, and they begin to confront Joash, who is Gideon's father, and they demand retribution. And here, the depleted and dilapidated morals of the nation of Israel are on full display, for what they cry is exactly opposite of what God had commanded. I'm going to read for you, if you want to look this up, you can, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 13. I want you to listen to the words of God 
to his people before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 11. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son of your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but... You shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him and put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as among you. That's pretty direct. God does not share his glory. God does not tolerate people leading others away from him. And God is jealous for his people here. And so the prescribed penalty of promoting idol worship in the land of Israel is death. But look what happens in Judges chapter 6. What is Gideon promoting? Is he promoting idol worship? He's promoting worship to the one true God. And what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. Man, what a messed up place that is, huh? It almost reminds us of the culture we live in. And this is how serious God takes commandments about his glory. But yet here the the people are instead calling for the life of Gideon. And why are they doing that? Why are they so upset? Because he tore down their altar and built an altar to Yahweh. And here's the thing. Men, ladies, all of us in our lives, when our gods are challenged, our response is very telling. When God challenges those things in our lives that we give more credence to than him, how do you and I respond? See, here's the thing. If God is going to use us to do great things for him, then he has to have first place in our lives. Gideon was raised in an idol-worshiping society, but he gave his allegiance instead to God alone. The majority of others around him are not there yet, but instead they hold fast to those idols, threatening to end the life of one who challenged them. And I get it, guys, okay? So then we look at that and we say, well, I mean, we don't, we don't have little idols, we don't have little wooden poles. You know what? Our gods are just much more sophisticated. We worship the sports games, the work hours, the family time, the personal comfort, the experiences, you name it. All of these things that we prioritize over God. And we we dare to say, well, I don't have any idols in my life because I don't have little wooden statues. You know what? These things may seem innocent, but they are deadly. They are terrible masters in our lives. And they will drive us to ungodly actions quicker than we might expect. Standing for God means shedding our primary allegiance to anything else but him alone. And when we do so, we may be surprised what God will do along the way. 
Gideon, I can only imagine, was very surprised at the curious cooperation he experiences at the end of this chapter, or end of this section, verses 31 and 32. But Joash said to all who would stand against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. In verse 31, we see the reinforcement of family in Gideon's life. Standing for God may lead us into a precarious situation, but we can still do these things in his strength. And in the end, standing for the right is the side that we want to be on. You see, Gideon stood for God when it wasn't popular. Gideon stood for God and it put him in the crosshairs. Gideon stood for God when it meant defying his own father. And surprisingly, Gideon's stand for God gained him an ally in his father. I mean, I don't know about you, but, but when I read what's going on here, and I read what the men of the city say, and I understand that, that, that Joash's things have been involved here, and he's the guy who, who probably led the idol worship, I kind of expect him to throw Gideon to the wolves. I mean, you understand that the, 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 the total lack of morals in that society at this time. You kind of expect that. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he gives to, get to, to the men a very logical and really irony-filled answer for those calling for Gideon's head. You know what he says? Hey, if Baal is so offended and Baal is so incensed at what's going on, then let Baal take care of it. Because, right, because here what we see what happened, God's taking care of the people who've offended him. God sent somebody. God has performed an action. And what, what, what Joash says here in verse 31, that let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning, what he is saying is that if one lays a hand on Gideon, if, if, if one kills Gideon for what he's done, then Joash says that, that's murder according to the law. And then he would carry out God's prescribed judgment on murder with capital punishment. But here's the thing, there will be no retaliation from a lifeless God. That fictional deity has nothing to offer for his own defense. And God's power and goodness instead are on display. Because Gideon feared for his life, but obeyed God anyway. And God showed Gideon there are others who are willing to do what's right. Men, your families are ready to follow you in doing right. They just need you to step up. Your fellow church members are ready to embrace you and rally around you, but they need you to step up. Your coworkers are ready to see right done once again in your workplace, but they're too afraid or they don't possess the moral compass to begin the process. And if you would stand for God, you may be surprised at the response you would get. Sure, you'll have your detractors, but God also has a way of sending encouragement to his faithful servants. Gideon then receives a constant reminder of his feet this day. Look at the, the verse 32. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him, because he has torn down his altar. Joash and perhaps others in the town that day, they give Gideon what, what we would probably call a nickname. They call him Jerubbabel. And that's a name, names are very important in, the, in Israelite society, and that's a name that defies the God of Baal. 
It means let Baal plead or contend against him. It defies Baal because it would never happen. Baal has no power. Gideon stood for God in obedience and he found the power of God unfailing in his life. He had begun his war for God by first attacking the hearts of God's people. And the people could not serve God if they would not first leave their idols. And even with fear in his heart, Gideon obeyed God. And he found that God met him there, ready to empower him and reward him for faithful obedience. And men, God can do that for you today as well. He can give you the courage to step up for him. He can give you the strength to gain victory in him. But he needs your cooperation. He needs your devotion. He needs your commitment to himself. The question we must ask and answer is, will we stand in the gap and make a difference for him? Because a broad impact for the Lord begins with a personal commitment to following God exclusively, and it's shown in active obedience. Gideon lived in a day that is not unlike our own. He lived in a culture that was devoted to everything but God. The creator had been relegated to nothing more than an afterthought. And his creation had been exalted over everything else. And that sounds a lot like how our world lives today. Yet God wasn't done working in Israel. And God isn't done working in the world we live in today either. He uses his faithful servants who will give their devotion to him and stand up for him in his strength. And men, as the leaders of our homes, as the leaders in our world, will you and I commit to being such a one? Will we commit to making a difference? Dads and those who are further down the road of life, will you take responsibility over those in your life and call them to, to, to call for their cooperation in these things as well? Will you set the example by making the things of God mandatory in the lives of your, of your own life and the lives who follow you? Will you show them in love that the only way to be truly joyful is serving God? Young men, will you make this pledge in your life early on? Will you commit to a wholehearted, singularly focused life on your creator. There are so many things in life that are trying to steal your focus. I'm going to tell you, it takes a discipline to stay committed and following God. To say that he is the one we will follow. And it begins with a personal relationship with God. You and I, though, though we are born sinners... And though we stand condemned before a holy and just God, we, because God is loving and gracious, can have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And I would just say that if that's something you don't know, understand what we're talking about, or, or you've heard about and you have questions about, you can settle your, the question of your eternity today and have this type of relationship with God, that, that you can stand in his strength and do great things for him in your personal life and with those in the lives of those around you. If we will commit ourselves to God, he can and he will use us. So let's stand in the gap and make a difference. Let's stand up for what's right. 
Let's say, hey, whatever it costs, God, I'm willing to pay. Whatever it means, I'm willing to give to you that I may make a difference for you, not only in the world we live in, but, but right in our own neighborhood. Let's take it down, you know, not just our workplace and our church, but our homes. Because that's where it starts. And it spreads out from there, and God can do a great and mighty thing. And God would go on in the life of Gideon, and he would do a great and mighty work in the life of Gideon. He would deliver the nation from the Midianites. Now, Gideon didn't always do right, but he consistently obeyed God, and he followed him. But it had to start at home. It had to start there. And that's where it has to start in our own lives as well. Father, we thank you for the life-changing power of the Word of God. We thank you for the things that you record about your faithful servants. Lord, about this guy named Gideon who, he had no merits of his own. He, he didn't even see himself as, as a great leader. But you did a great and mighty work in and through him because he was willing to give himself to you. Lord, we must admit that when we look at the culture in which Gideon lived, there's not a lot of differences between then and now. Or maybe the biggest difference is just the technology that we have today. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to make a difference. Help us to stand up for what is right. Help us to be willing to get rid of whatever it is you have placed your finger on in our lives. Help us to change those things and come back to you. Lord, for the sake of the next generation, may we be consumed with God and God alone. We ask now as we close out this service that you would continue to do your work in our hearts, that you would help us to honor you and glorify you this week. In your name we pray, amen.